There are people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to episode six of the Toxic Avengers podcast. Thanks for joining. For this episode, I spoke with Jacqueline Warren, who worked as an attorney with the Environmental Defense Fund and the Natural Resources Defense Council from 1973 to 1991, where she was one of the leading toxics advocates in Washington, D.C., when most of the major federal toxics laws, including the Safe Drinking Water Act, Superfund, and the Toxic Substances Control Act, were enacted. During her years at EDF and NRDC, Jackie was a triple threat to the chemical industry, working to pass strong legislation, pressing EPA to adopt protective health standards, and litigating against EPA and the industry when they failed to follow the law. Among her many accomplishments was a successful lawsuit overturning EPA's attempt to exempt most uses of toxic PCBs from a ban enacted by Congress and halting the use of several widely used pesticides that were dangerous to public health. Our conversation traced the path which led to her starting a career in environmental law, looked at some of the key areas of her work, and discussed what it takes to win meaningful protections from toxic chemicals. One technical note, there were some connectivity problems during our interview that had a minor effect on the audio quality of the recording in some places. Here's my interview with Jacqueline Warren, recorded in February of last year. So thank you for agreeing to come on the show and be a guest. So Jackie, uh, I actually wanted to start out just with some background about you preceding your, your environmental, the beginning of your environmental career. Where are you from originally? I was born in New York City in the Bronx and grew up in a little town on Long Island called a town of 10,000 people when we moved there. And what did, what did your parents do? My father was a chiropractor. And my mother worked, you know, she did part-time office work. Did you have siblings? Yes, two sisters. An older sister and a younger sister. The older sister um, worked in community development and housing. She lived in California. She passed away last December, but she she went to the Kennedy School and got a master's in public administration, like a mid-career master's. The younger sister is a lawyer. And I was a I was a computer programmer and systems analyst for about six years after college and before law school. And I worked for CompSat, Communication Satellite Corporation. Did you have an interest in environment as a kid? Were you a sort of an outdoor kid or was there any connection at that time, science interest or anything? No, none of the above, I would say. And I I got my, my college um, major was American Studies history, 
political science kinds of things. And I did a year at Columbia graduate school. I don't know if that's on my resume or not, because I didn't get, I didn't stay to get the degree. It was a two-year master's program and with a focus on Latin American studies, having nothing whatever to do with it. But it was just an interest that I had had for a long time. So where did you go to college? I went to Smith College. How did you choose Smith? What was it about Smith that attracted you? Actually, I had never really heard of Smith. But there was, amongst the Smith alumni, they were looking for... Smith had been basically a, a place of wealthy women's, wealthy people's daughters. And around the time that I went there, or the year preceding that a little bit, there was a push to bring some more public school people from public schools there instead of just from Miss Porter's and places like that. And so I, I graduated, I was the valedictorian in my high school class. And so that I, one of the guidance, Oh, this is one other thing. One of the guidance counselors there who was the biology teacher, there were two, one was the driver ed teacher and then track coach, and the other was the biology teacher. And I, because of an alphabetical separation of who guided whom, I got the track coach. And he, his advice to me about college was go into the guidance office. There's a whole shelf of college books there and pick out a couple of schools. And so I did. I went in there and I picked Carlton, Grinnell, Carlton and Grinnell, because I like the way they looked in the catalogs. And also, for no particular reason, Albany State Teachers College. Don't, don't ask me. I didn't want to be a teacher. And that was one that focused on math, which wasn't my favorite subject. So, But anyway, that's what I did. So one day, kind of towards, I think around February of my senior year, I encountered this guidance counselor, biology teacher, who was not my counselor in the hall. And she said, where are you going? So I told her, she said, what? Go to Vassar, go to Smith. <laughs> so I applied to Vassar and Smith. And that was how I got the wound up going to Smith. It was completely coincidental. But then after I applied, then I people from the Smith network reached out to me to try to ease the way to going to a, an Ivy League school. I mean, I had family members, not my immediate family, but and one aunt in particular who said, don't go there. They're very snobby. You'll feel be very unhappy there. And she didn't know anything about it, actually. And it turned out that it was a wonderful experience for me. And I'm really glad I went there. But I just pursued what I was wanting to do. And I, I did go there. And it, and it was really a very good place for me because it, it got me from being, it was only women. So I didn't have to worry about, you know, I was sort of out of it so socially in high school because I was too smart or something. I don't know. But, you know, the, I must have scared the boys away. I don't know. But anyway, I didn't want to go to a place where it was all fraternities and sororities and all that social stuff that I thought I would wind up again being out of it and a wallflower. So that was part of why I picked a, a women's college. But Smith was wonderful for me. It really was. It just... It's one of these places where, you know, discover who you are, discover what you like, take all sorts of courses and things you never thought you'd have any interest in. 
Nobody knew who was on scholarship or who wasn't. I was. You didn't have a requirement. And as I said, nobody really knew. And so you could just fit in without having to worry about, you know, is everybody going to be, you know, looking at me differently because I'm on scholarship and they're not. There was really none of that. It was, it was amazing. It was just meeting some really wonderful, nice people. So you were an American studies major, and it sounds like you had an interest in Latin America in particular. I did. I did. In fact, I, my senior honors thesis I wrote on the CIA involvement in the overthrow of a regime in Guatemala that was a, a socialist-leaning regime that was run by a, a man who was actually was elected. His name was Arbenz. And I got, I was sort of radical. So I it was really, I got into thinking about left-wing, you know, political things. My parents were Republicans for reasons known only to them, because they certainly, from a financial point of view, were not Republican type. They were. Those years were amazing years. You know, there was no, no real women's movement at that point. I can't, I mean, our campus... Nobody agitated for anything that I can think of, really. So that didn't, I didn't get to the point of being, you know, thinking about activism until I, basically until I went to law school. You know, I was politically interested in things, but I wasn't doing anything until I got, until I got to law school. And even law school, I told you I had a career in a computer programmer. I always was sort of pugnacious, I have to say. And I, when I got out of college, I went to look for a job. And, you know, with a college degree at, in those years, it was a can you type theory. And uh, I didn't want to do anything like that. And so I, I found out that Metropolitan Life was training and hiring people to be programmers. And so I started out at MetLife. And that's how I learned about how to do that. But... In 1969, I would say, you know, 68 was this revolutionary time and it was terrible things, assassinations, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, and there was a lot of unrest in the country. And I had lunch with three Smith friends. One of them was clerking for a judge in the U.S. Court of Appeals in District of Columbia Circuit, Judge Edgerton, who was a very liberal judge. One of them worked in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, also a wonderful place, exciting place to work in 1968. And the last was on the staff of Congressman Ogden Reed, who was a congressman from Westchester County in New York. So I came home from that lunch, this was like December of 1969. And I said to my husband, I wanna to go to law school. And I quickly had to think, there was only one more time I could take the, the LSATs and get in for the following September. So where am I going? And I looked around. My husband was at a law firm in Washington at that time. And for, we went to Washington because he he um, had a friend who was in a firm in Washington and said, come down here. And he's, he's a law degree, but he was a tax lawyer at the time. Looked around at what the firms were like and where they hired from. Georgetown had a better reputation nationally GW had a really good reputation in the city of Washington, in the District of Columbia. 
And then I, so I just applied to both schools and I got in, but I decided to go to GW. And GW at the time was, they were so not good about women. They had 30, the class, you know, I'm trying to think of the percentage of the class, like 10% of the class or something that was women. They never even told me that I got in, you know, it got to be around May and I hadn't heard anything. And so I contacted them and then they said, oh yes, you got in. And then they, they sent me the things. So amazing when you think about what people go through now and being on pins and needles, waiting to hear back from school. But so I went there and the first year you have to take at that point, you had to take basically requirements and maybe one elective or another. There was a professor named Arnold Reitze, who was, he was an environmental law professor. He had written a text on environmental law. It was a new subject area. And I took his course in my second year. And it was so eye-opening, so interesting that that was how I decided I wanted to do more with environmental law. And then when I graduated, I, this summer after my second year, I worked at Covington and Burling, which was at the point at that point the best firm in Washington. But in the in the fall, um, I thought I might EPA was created, and I thought I might like to try to it was Ruckel's house, and I thought I might get a job, and I in fact even applied to EPA for a job. But then I heard via the there was a, a women's law network. I heard a rumor that EDF had gotten a grant to hire two professionals, a lawyer and a scientist. And so I applied for the lawyer's job and I got it. And that's how I got to EDF. And that was amazing. And the rest was history, actually, because I, you know, there was so much to do. There were so many, having taken that course on environmental law and seen how there were some laws around that, you know, there was some water pollution statutes and, Clean Air Act amendments in 1970, but the the situation in general was really pretty bad, and so we, you know, we got to EDF and their their model, which is the same as NODCs, which is to have scientists on the staff as well as lawyers working together in teams to address an issue, for, you know, identify the issues from a scientific point of view, and then try to address what you could do about them from a legal point of view, and so. It was fascinating. It really was. I mean, it was just any number of subjects to get involved in, as you could see. So the staff at EDF had some scientists, some Nader, Ralph Nader uh, graduates, sort of. And so they were people who knew that you could do things through the media as well as just, you know, publishing reports. It was very effective. And when I think about how we, I mean, just to give you one example, I worked on passage of the Safe Drinking Water Act. There had been a Safe Drinking Water Act passed by one house or another starting, you know, I think in the early 70s, but it never went anywhere. And so these two, one, these two scientists, a guy named Joe Hyland, I don't know if you remember Joe, Joe Hyland's name, and Bob Harris were the two EDF Nader graduates, scientists on the staff. Bob and Bob figured out that we should NRDC, not NRDC, EDF should do a sampling of water supplies around the country 
And then when we got our results back, publicize, you know, publicize them. And it, that happened. We got our results. We went, it was around Thanksgiving of probably 1974 or so. I might not have the years quite right here, but it was all over the papers. And Congress came back from their recess and passed the Safe Drinking Water Act in like two days. <laughs> <laughs> and that's after years of trying to get it through. So, so that was a way of, you know, that you media to help you get the, you know, get the issue around to people so they understood it, get them upset about it. I mean, the same technique was used with Alar and apples. And I mean, I'm sure it's a tried and true method of getting an issue sure. out into the public and understood. Was some of the testing you did down in New Orleans, because I know that in the legislative history of, uh, of the Drinking Water Act, they talk about the contamination down in New Orleans area. New Orleans sits there at the bottom of the river of the Mississippi and all along all of the waste materials from all the industry that's up and down both sides of the river dumped, just dumped it in the river and it came down and landed in the drinking water of the people all along the way, but also in New Orleans. They had some of the worst. And so we just got the information out and around and it was, that seemed to be the way to move them. And then, of course, that was just the beginning because you get, you know, that leads to some new laws and that leads to some, you know, things that are assigned to the regulatory agencies at that point, EPA, to come up with some regulations and deadlines to do it. And so then we had lawsuits to hold their feet to the fire and so many different under so many different statutes. But you had to follow it. They get the regulations out. Then you have to participate in the regulatory proceedings. Then you have to beat them to the courthouse to get a favorable panel if you possibly could. And then, you know, go through all that and then wind up, if you did get a loss, you know, a victory, then that just started the whole process all over again in many cases. So we did get a lot done, you know, as I was looking back over that stuff, that's all that material that you sent to me. It was a good reminder that once upon a time, we we managed to get a lot of good stuff done. I think it's much harder today. I really do. There's so many other media sources. That was easy. You know, you just go to NBC or CBS or somebody. They were always, you know, 60 minutes. They were always looking for something. They helped us. So were you, you were working on the Drinking Water Act. So it was, it was, enacted and it was passed into law in 1974, but it had been around, there had been a process for Congress to finally put that together. So had you worked on the developing the law in 73 and 74, I guess? So we were, uh, you know, we were looking at the disparities around the country. Some states had really good drinking water laws. Some states had terrible ones. And we, you know, the whole thing was, why should the quality of your drinking water depend on where you happen to live? It should be, it should be some baseline of, you know, standards where states could get even more restrictive, but below which they shouldn't be allowed to go. And that, you know, they should identify the really dangerous contaminants in water and set standards for them so that everybody would have at least a minimum of drinkable water. That was the, you know, what we were trying to do, but, Wanting to do that and getting Congress to actually 
do it were two different things. And that was what we needed. We needed that study that, you know, was blown up all over the press and then finally scared the Congress into doing something about it. There were good people working on it in the Congress, but you just could not get it. You know, the other thing depended on what committees had it. I mean, Tosca is the prime example of the sort of the orphan statute that nobody, it was nobody's baby, and so nobody felt any pride of ownership over it. It's, it was always one that was, you know, I got interested in it. Just It was just to fill the gaps, you know, between the statutes that, you know, that covered a lot of water or air or whatever, but not everything that needed to be covered. But Tosca never lived up to, you know, we could never get it to be what we would have liked it to be because Congress didn't write it that way. So, you know, I, was, <laughs> I watched one of those, you know, the one testimony where I was there with a, a, a Eric Fruman from the guy and Karen Florini and also the, you know, Chemical Manufacturers Association. But the, and Mike Sinar, I had forgotten about him. He was really very good about it. But, you know, even he, Al Gore after him, I mean, they all tried to do something, but there wasn't anybody who really owned it enough not the way the Clean Water Act was sort of owned by the public, you know, public works committees, and they they looked out for it, but nobody really did for Tosca. I don't even know now. I mean, if you work on on Tosca, do you have good support in the Congress right now, or from any strong figure anywhere? Um, I think the in the Senate the. Um, well, now he's chair of the Environment and Public Works Committee. Um, Tom Carper from Delaware uh, is would be the sort of the one paying the most attention to it in the Senate. I think um, it had been Tom Udall from New Mexico had played a pretty central role in the reauthorization in 2016, but he just retired. And then on the House side, same you know Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, it's Frank Pallone from New Jersey and I think Paul Tonko from New York are probably the two members of Congress on the House side who are paying the most attention to the implementation. The problem is, you know, they, they reenacted the law or, you know, reauthorized the law with a lot of changes in 2016. And then almost immediately the Trump administration took over and they did everything for four years contrary to what the law required. So, you know, we've been in a series of lawsuits, NRDC and EDF and Earth Justice and other groups, um, so that you sort of haven't really had a chance to see that law be implemented by an administration that's, you know, sympathetic to the the goals of the act. It was just four years of essentially the chemical industry implementing Tosca from inside the EPA, which was not helpful. So we're, it'll, it's going to be really interesting right now. I mean, it's just starting to change the leadership of EPA. And, uh, you know, there's a lot in the revised law that has potential to lead to a lot of uh, regulation and reduction of exposures, um, including for, you know, vulnerable populations and fence line communities. But as, as then it is still the, the case that you spend years working on developing the legislation, then years working on the regulation, whatever the steps are, the 
risk evaluations or the, you know, whatever the rules are, and then litigation to fix whatever the agency did incorrectly. So it's, it's, it's very much the same. Um, you know, it takes a lot of patience as you know, as you're, you know, it, it, to, to do the, this particular work. I mean, I think it's true for other types of at least federal policy. You just have to be able to hang in there for a long time. I don't know how I got involved in so many different statutes, though. That's what I was and wondering. All, <laughs> I know. All of the the press and congressional and every other aspect of each of them. And but you know, I I had a good team with me at EDF. And then when I went to NRDC again, you know, the scientist was Karima Med and also Ricky Pereira. And Lewis Slesson also, I don't know if you know, if you remember Lewis's name or not, but, but they had, you know, they were really first rate. We had really good science always. And we got help from outside of the organization, from other scientists. I remember George Woodwell was very helpful in things. Ian Nisbet, I don't know if you know Ian Nisbet's name. I don't even know if Ian is still alive, but he was the main scientific person that worked with us on things like Aldrin Dieldrin and the other pesticides, some of the other pesticides. And the pesticide stuff, that's, that's what started EDF. I mean, they were, they were a group of some scientists, uh, a high school biology teacher and some other people way out on, on Long Island. And they were concerned about bird eggshells, softening of bird eggshells, and so a decline of certain species, that was sort of the genesis of the work that EDF got into. They didn't move the headquarters into New York City until much later. I mean, they were really out there for a long time. But the more we looked into things, the more egregious it was. It was not very hard to get agitated and angry and wanting to do something about these things, so. You know, interestingly enough, you know, I, I moved to New York from Washington in, in 1980. And I came to NRDC very soon after that because EDF did not have an office in New York City. But NRDC did. And I'd been working with them. I was working on all the Tosca issues with Ross Sandler. I did some work with Eric Goldstein and Kareem and Ricky. And so it was a natural progression to just go there, especially since, you know, EDF still had their main headquarters out on Long Island. That was the main, that was the main reason I switched. I think I, if EDF had still had a big operation in the city, I would have continued there, but they didn't. And they, they didn't seem to have a plan to have one either at that point. So, and being in the middle, I mean, there was so much ongoing things in the day I came to NRDC was the day that we got the decision from the DC circuit that we had won the PCBs case. So talk a little bit about that. The PCBs. I mean, that's an issue. That's an issue that is very, gets a lot of attention. It's a f- big focus in the early 1970s. And then in 1976, there's a ban 
I mean, Tosca included a ban. I'm, I know you know this. I'm just kind of stating it for the record that Tosca, the Toxic Substances Control Act, included a a ban on PCBs, and but then, um, but then the which is really the only chemical that was specifically banned in Tosca, and uh, even so, um, I don't know if you remember how that ban came about with John Dingle, or if you have any thoughts about that. But then EPA was not really um you know they were very slow i mean they they did a rulemaking that uh, you can talk about that that didn't really meet the the requirements of the law well you know that congress as you said rarely picks a named chemical to ban but they did the pcbs there'd been reports in the papers all over the country about pcbs in fish and pcb levels in human tissues and there was a lot of negative information out there and people were worried about PCBs and every time any dredging went on in harbors that would, you know, release the material again and it could get into fish. So we, uh, you know, we worked first of all to try to get it, you know, Congress's ban on it to, to happen. And when EPA put out a regulation, they exempted 99% of the uses of PCBs from the ban so that it didn't meet the smell test, as we used to say. And so I remember arguing in front of a panel in the D.C. Circuit about that. And they just, I mean, I remember Judge Leventhal in particular, he used to wear little, gla- little uh, glasses on the edge of his nose and just looking down his nose at the EPA lawyers and wanting to have some response to how it was that such a small amount of the PCBs were actually being reached by the ban. But the amount that was left over to deal with became the focus of so much activity and more litigation after that, because they were small and more difficult uses of it, or totally enclosed uses of it, where it wasn't going to get out into anything. And it was was also in railroad transformers, and I think still is. and they, it was too disruptive, I think, for EPA to try to just summarily ban that when there weren't substitutes readily available and the cost of actually carrying out that kind of a, of a ban was too high for the last part of it. I mean, the manufacturer had stopped. It's kind of like asbestos. Asbestos was banned also and hasn't been mined in the United States. But there were products that had asbestos in asbestos, linoleum, tile, and that kind of thing. And it was difficult to get at those last few. I think we still probably haven't on many of those, or they just were phased out because the economics were the reason they got phased out, not because of a regulatory requirement. Right. And I think, it. I mean, it is still showing up in different products, um, both in imported products and other things. So there's, it. it I mean, they still haven't completed the ban that was sort of rejected by the Fifth Circuit in corrosion proof fittings case, in the corrosion proof fittings case. We did not have a sympathetic panel. And, you know, all of those the issues that seem so obviously, you know, black and white are not at all ever. And there, there always were such technical kinds of questions that came up, as you could see through 
you know, some of the materials and the things that we wound up litigating, even simply, we wanted to get chemicals tested, just have them be tested. And if you find that they're hazardous, either take them off the market or keep the ones that show up tested, you know, positive for bad things before they go into commerce. Just don't ever let them go to begin with. I mean, industry agreed with that. They didn't want to continue to be caught with a big problem with a chemical that was heavily central to all sorts of industrial processes, suddenly having to go off, you know, be taken off. So it was in their interest also to try to make sure that things that got caught early, but sometimes they didn't quite see it that way. And so we were fighting along the way. And, you know, as one of the, the EPA, um, you know, groups that met, I was part of it, we'd, we'd get into these discussions. I mean, the industry people didn't want to be associated with bad products. They didn't want the press from it and they didn't want any other aspect. They, they were generally in favor of keeping bad products off the market before they could be a problem. But saying that and actually implementing something like that that works were two very different things. It's very hard to come up with a, a uniform testing protocol. Testing is very expensive. And if, the, if a toxic substance comes in as part of something else, it's very hard to deal with it. Just as an example, if you, if you buy a product, you know, one of the examples in the literature was of automobiles, where the parts come, they're manufactured all over the world. They come in with all sorts of toxic materials. And it's very hard to get a handle on how you keep the exposure of people from that. I mean, if you, you get in a new car and you smell that new car, plastics smell, generally the toxicity of some of that is very bad. But, but to find a way to get at it in the beginning, I mean, the Europeans started a whole process of having testing. They reached an agreement on what sort of pre-market testing we were talking, we were arguing about should it be before it goes to market or before you even manufacture it in a big way? Shouldn't you test and know that something's got to have a certain toxicity so that you, you don't use it at all to begin with? Sounds easy. It isn't easy at all. So many of the cases and the struggles had to do with things like that. And, and what do you do about small companies that get hit by the cost of trying to show that their products are not dangerous when they haven't got the resources to do that. They can, you know, there were always discussions about having, having trade associations put together the resources for the smaller entities to be able, you know, to, to handle safe products without having the expense of having to find out whether they were safe or not by themselves. I think some of that is still a big issue, should be. Because you still don't, when you have supply chains from all over the world, it's very difficult to know, you know, what goes into what from where and how safe or unsafe is it and what kind of exposures come from it. So, Did you feel um, when you were doing the work, say the Tosca work or the um, really any of the, uh, the PCBs work, what was the relative strength in terms of resources for you know you and maybe somebody from NRDC or who, so who are the other 
environmental environmental advocates who were engaged on a particular issue versus how many industry people on the other side of the table. You know, we tried to form coalitions of environmental groups as much as we could, but I would say EDF and NRDC far and away had the most resources. We always like to say we, we may be out manned, but we're not outgunned because we had a lot, a lot of help from people in the, in the scientific community. And it was generally given on a voluntary basis. You know, and the whole thing was almost like, you know, kabuki theater, very posture. I mean, we would always, when EPA did something, we participated in the regulatory process. And then, I mean, there was always some reason that we weren't, we didn't get everything we wanted, but that was okay because the industry and, and, and anything having to do with pesticides in particular, the Department of Agriculture would come in on the side of the industry. And so we'd be facing jointly the, whatever the chemical organization was, it could be a company, it could be the chemical, what they then called the Chemical Manufacturers Association. And, right. and then it would just be us. We'd be suing EPA from the other side to sort of pull them, you know, to provide a little counterweight to what they were facing otherwise. I mean, they were having to defend defend themselves with really no help. And it was, I had many EPA lawyers tell me privately that they they wanted us there. They needed us there to come in and just sort of pull our argument in that other direction and be able to be a counter, especially when we got to court, to make the other arguments. Since they were they were being sued on both sides then, and so we could make the arguments that sometimes they were not able to make. It was helpful. I'm, I'm sure that's probably still true to some extent. So they, I mean... They didn't like us. I know they didn't like me, but, but, but we had a, you know, we played a role there, I think that was important because otherwise it's just EPA and wanting to make the whole thing go away as much as possible. And we got, we wanted to be included in the decision-making as much as possible. And that was one way to make sure that we would be because whenever either they try to settle the case or they would, decide that we'll get some sort of regulatory rulemaking, you know, together and everybody who was a role player would be participating in it. And any time that we were left out of it, we would make as much noise as possible in the press so that they had to let us in as much as we could find out. You you probably have seen some of those secret meetings kinds of charges. And yes, because it's too easy. We just finished four years of an administration that sat in the back rooms giving the industry, you know, every dream off their wish list that they could have come up with and trying to, and undoing things that people worked really long and hard to establish never as much as we wanted. But again, that's the other thing. I mean, you asked about environmental coalitions. We had to go before Congress, go to court, little organizations that didn't have to do that could be as radical and throwing bombs as much as they wanted to and saying everything because they were never called on to defend and prove what they said. We had to. So we never could be as far out on the fringe as some of those organizations were. 
And I think that's still true today. You know, if you have to basically put your money where your mouth is at some point, they never had to do that. So they could, you know, the, the further away you are from where, you know, really defending against or getting something changed, the easier it is to just have an extreme position. I think that's probably still true today. I mean, I'm not in those arguments anymore, particularly, but I think so. There's a long running kind of a series of cases, I think actually starting in with an NRDC case before you're there, but there's a a whole issue under Tosca through the seventies and eighties. And really then it turns out up to the present about there's authority in the law and really some requirement for, for EPA to test chemicals at the time to, to test chemicals, to determine their toxicity. And they, so, I mean, there are, there are instances where EPA, you know, that, that law of Tosca was enacted initially in 1976 and you all are litigating into the late eighties over them issuing these test rules that, you know, were supposed to happen in the seventies. So, I mean, why do you think there was, that's not an example. It doesn't seem like an example, even like you were saying earlier, well, where, well, you know, industry got some of what they wanted and we got some of what we wanted. And then it kind of played out that way. This is more like EPA was not doing what they were required to do. And I don't know if you have a sense of whether that was just because they were tangled up bureaucratically or it was pressure from the chemical industry or political pressure during the, you know, sort of it was during the, Re- during the Reagan administration obviously is, is eight years of the eighties. And so maybe during the Ann Gorsuch period, there was just not, there was just not going to be as much action under Tosca or anything else. Do you have a, a take on those years and what was going on there? You know, it's, it's hard to, to say it was any one, one factor, but I think that there were pressures on EPA not to impose a lot of, you know, economic burdens on industry. I think they, they heard a lot about, you know, jobs being threatened and things, you know, the same old arguments that always get made that if you, if you cause these expenditures to have to be made, then there's going to be job loss. There's going to be, I, I could just give you one example of that, that but when vinyl chloride, which was a known human carcinogen, very high exposures in the workplace and, and a lot of cancer resulting from that. And the, the arguments against regulating it was that it's a building block chemical in the, um, in the plastics industry and it's going to destroy the plastics industry and there's going to be huge unemployment resulting from that and a lot of political heat that the agency would have to take. There's no way that that's going to get done. And that, that simply wasn't, it wasn't true. It actually wasn't true because in the end, vinyl chloride did get regulated and the workplaces were made safer and the plastics industry did not go out of business. So, so we, but I think that EPA always was hearing that. I think that, OMB was always in there with a, you know one algorithm or another to figure out the best way to prove that it, you know that it was not economically infeasible to do something and whatever you know and then using the unreasonable risk standard was a whole other issue because it was never defined 
So you never could find out what, what's unreasonable. And there were so many variables that never could be valued. Like what's the environmental value in dollar terms of, you know, saving some species or saving some kind of trees or whatever. And also what's a human life worth. And so they would argue endlessly about questions like that. And I think in general, I don't think that a bureaucracy like EPA really wanted to be in the middle of that as much as they could avoid it. And I think that that played a role too, that not wanting to be too controversial in the things that they did. I think that EPA took a lot of heat. I mean, my, my husband was in the EPA Office of Legislation starting 1970 to 1977. You know, and they were always trying to, you know, to, to fight EPA's battles up in Congress. It's very hard to do that because it, you know, some of the arguments are pretty simplistic. Not that our arguments weren't simplistic. They were sometimes too. But they're always, you know, so much of it seemed to be personalities who were offended up there or, I mean, there were so many factors with this. No, I can't give you a one simple answer to that. But I think through the 80s, there were, you know, especially... Once Reagan got in and once, um, you know, sort of the Ann Gorsuch kind of, I'm trying to remember the names of some of the people, but they, I think you could see the same, the thing that strikes me is how 30 years later, the same arguments are being made by the same sorts of players, just yeah, different names, <laughs> different faces, but. Also in 1986 is when the Safe Drinking Water Act was reauthorized. I was really interested to see that you were involved in that also. So 1974, as we talked about earlier, is when it was originally enacted. And part of what prompted that was a study you did at EDF, you know, calling attention to the contaminants, uh, different contaminants in drinking water around the country. So then between 1974 and 1986, not similar to Tosca, not a lot happens. The EPA doesn't do a whole lot. And then in 1986, it's reauthorized and there's a requirement for EPA to enact 20, you know, drinking water standards for 25 contaminants every three years, I think it was, which is a, was a significant increase. And it was sort of a reaction by Congress to EPA having dragged its feet for the previous 12 years. And that, that was a very significant change to that law. It was, it was so significant that the, <laughs> the industry and the drinking water providers pushed back so that in 1996, when it was reauthorized that they got rid of that 25 contaminants every three years. And I don't think we've had it very many, hardly any new drinking water standards since 1996. You know, it was, with not being able to get EPA, and it was always EPA, to begin to address these issues. So, okay, they don't know how to start, so we're going to give them a list. So we gave them a list of tests, you know, with the testing rules. We're going to give them a list of chemicals to require testing on, a list of contaminants for them to begin to approach. We're going to give them a list of toxic pollutants that they begin to address under the Clean Water Act. It was always the same approach, and somehow or other, it seems like it ends up with a similar result, that they, they're slow 
where they don't do it, where they push back in some way. And I think it's, it's such a, it's such an unbalanced group of forces operating on this. I think, I mean, you can get the environmental groups and particular issue related groups on behalf of the public, such as it is. And then you have a more unified industry associations that form coalitions and are pretty well organized. And both the, you know, the industry coalitions or their trade associations had EPA's ear a lot, depending on the politics of the time. I mean, when you had Reagan in the White House, they had much more access than we did to, well, then we, but the environmental groups did. Right. Press for those things. So in general, we came up with little uh, programs to get them to have to do something, which is do these pollutions. Or, I mean, these pollutants are those number of contaminants in drinking water, this number of testing rules. It was, it was all just different techniques to try to make the agency move. I think it's probably still true. And it's always for people, I think it's always easier to just not do it. Because then no, nobody, nobody gets angry at you on the regulated industry side. And to the extent that the environmental groups or other citizens groups are making noise, they're, they're not always going to be able to affect a change in it. So I think that hasn't changed. It has not changed. I think most people, many people don't have a grasp on the, on the, either the details of the, of particular problems, you know, drinking water contaminants or pesticides in food. They have a pretty good general sense that things aren't all that they should be. And that, you know, my sense is that there's a pretty healthy distrust of the chemical industry. In fact, more so than, um, than in Congress, uh, you know, my experience is that, you know, <laughs> the average person knows that the chemical industry probably isn't telling them the truth about the safety of their products. Whereas many members of Congress seem much more credulous, which is an ongoing problem. There seems to, I think there's a disconnect there that we need to do a better job of bridging. And certainly things like the, the, you know, the PFAS crisis now, Many people know about that because it's in drinking water all over the country and it's in, you know, it's in other products and it's leaking out from under um, military bases, et cetera. So that, that, act, that issue actually is probably one of the closest in the toxics world to having, I mean, not universal understanding, but quite widespread understanding and public concern about it. And as a result, you're seeing much more bipartisan efforts in, in Congress to to try and get EPA to deal with that problem. Of course, they weren't going to do anything in this past administration, but now I think the Biden administration is going to take that issue much more seriously. But getting the issue to their attention is still, there's still, to me, a big role for the citizen activist organizations yes. to do it. Otherwise, there's just floating discomfort in the public, but then... What can you do? And then it's those the same organizations working through the framework of laws that we have that make it possible for them to do that. I don't see an alternative. 
to that. And I think it's actually worked reasonably well, and you know, in spite of all the conversation we just have been having. I mean, a lot of things have gotten done too. I mean, the air is markedly cleaner than it was. Drinking water is a lot safer. Products, even now, I mean, there's always some new one coming up, but things are generally better, I think, certainly than when I when I started out at working on these things. And it's because of the work of organizations like the EDFs and NRDCs of the world doing something to elevate the issue both to the public and to the Congress and to state legislatures, doing it using whatever handles you have. Because it does, you know, you don't hit a dead end very often, I don't think. It just means that, you know, you have to decide and have some priorities about which things are more important than which others and and just go after them. And if you look at it over time, we have chipped away at a certain amount of it. I mean, we're not exposing people through the, everything they breathe, eat, and, you know, touch to the same kinds of things that were there before that they really did not know about and which was making them sick, potentially killing them. I think it has. And during your time at EDF and NRDC, you were engaged in and in part responsible for passage of many of the most important acts, laws that federal laws that have led to the progress you just described. And a lot has been accomplished under those laws. You know, I think it's still unreasonably difficult to get more progress under those existing laws than it, than, than it should be. Uh, because the, the basic framework of those laws, if implemented properly and supported by Congress and funded by Congress, you know, more could be done than has been done. But I, I certainly agree that the, the basic structure is there and, and there, there have been, there was a lot of successes, particularly during the time that you were uh, working on these issues. Just, um, I know we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to ask you briefly about the pesticides work that you did, because we didn't really touch on that very much. And that's another important part of the work that you did. No, the pesticide law was based on the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. It was the licensing law for each pesticide. And all it did was license the label that went on the the pesticide package. It it wasn't regulatory in the sense that, you know, if if you could prove that that there were uses knowledgeably, you know, misuses of it, you could basically get rid of the label. Cancel it was called cancellation of the label. And for the pesticide, the use that I worked on it, I mean it's the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. Yes. Had got rid of DDT, which was a very pervasive, you know, in the family, the same family that PCBs were in, the chlorinated hydrocarbons. And the same thing for all the dealdren. We had to go into the, the, the law set up a structure where you, to cancel the pesticide, it, you start with the premise that it's licensed. You want to revoke the license it has to be going on trial. It, it called for an absolutely an adjudicatory hearing, a trial on it, where they, the manufacturer and the supporters in the Department of Agriculture put on witnesses in support of it. 
and the environmental groups put on witnesses against it. And EPA was the forum, so they it was difficult for them because they were kind of relying on EDF and NRDC to come up, well, at that point, I mean, EDF, to come up with the witnesses against it. And it, and it, it took very long. And then there was a, a period when you were then in court. And then, you know, it, the whole thing was very long, very expensive. But as I said earlier, we might have been outmanned, but we weren't outgunned. And we managed to beat them repeatedly and knock knock those substances off the market really one after another, even though it took a long time to do it. And it, there were some efforts that weren't successful, but mostly they were. So when I think of, I mean, the National Environmental Policy Act was passed in 1970, and there were so many statutes one after another in those years to deal with all the different problems. None of those set up a system like the, the pesticide law, which, you know, where the, the pesticide was like, it, it had rights. <laughs> it was on trial and it had rights. Right. Pesticides are people too. No, I guess so. I mean, that, but that was the approach that was taken. And, and you know, in the, the framework of the laws that we have, we had to work within it. But, we did, and I mean, you just need to have a stomach and <laughs> and a, an amount of persistence, which I had. So, yes. So, of the you know, you've talked about doing legislative work, trying to get laws passed, regulatory work, meaning you know, working with the agency to try and get rules written and implemented, and then litigation, typically over the rules uh, or. F- you know, certain failures of agencies to follow the law. Did you have a particular favorite aspect of that work? Is there one, one, was there some part of the advocacy that you preferred to do or, or did you like them all the same? No, I liked, I liked going to Congress and trying to get them to understand what the problems are that we saw because they were in a position in many cases to fix those in a way that all the litigation in the world wasn't going to do. Litigation is, I mean, it's combat. It isn't really that much fun, I don't think. I mean, it's fun to win, which we did. But it's, it takes very long, and it can wear you down sometimes. I never, I, I liked, I, one of the things I actually liked very much, sounds a little feeble in this conversation, but there were some re- regulatory negotiation situations where EPA or some other forum would bring in the stakeholders, the industry, the environmental groups, the labor groups, the uh, consumer groups, whatever, sit around a table and talk over how you can fix a problem that without having to just go you know, to the mat again. And I found those interesting because it people would give you some insight into how they thought about some of these issues. I came to understand the industry's point of view. I mean, once you're in litigation, you know, as I said, it's combat and everybody's locked into their positions and they're, you know, 
attributing the worst possible motives to you and you're doing the same thing for them. But talking, just talking things over and trying to arrive at a situation that works for everybody where it's one of these, the perfect isn't the enemy, the good in that situation. You maybe can find something that works. And we did do that sometimes. I think we actually may have done some of that with PCBs. The low-level PCBs, I think uh, I read about you all in the chemical industry having worked to an agreement on how to handle those rather than going into litigation. That's one example that I saw. Yeah, it makes sense if you can if you can do that. It's not an approach that gets used that often, or it wasn't while I was involved in those things. But I think it's helpful, and it's definitely helpful to try to just understand sometimes where the other side is coming from, which doesn't always show when you're at when you're in the posture of litigation, or if you're when you're talking to Congress and you have positions that you want them to take and. It doesn't always show where there's maybe some room for coming to an agreement. That's one of the things I like about, you know, some of the things that President Biden has talked about, about reaching some sort of a consensus on how to deal with an issue. Because strictly litigating it or screaming at each other in the press or, you know, it's scoring points as opposed to sometimes just trying to come to an agreement that, that works well enough that everybody can go away feeling like they're they're not happy they didn't get everything they wanted, but they can live with what they got. Right. I mean, that's what litigation settlements are about. That's really how they work too. So. Yeah. Let me ask you just quickly, tell me what your what's the thing you most feel disappointed by or didn't that you didn't accomplish that you most would have liked to in your you know, your tenure and then what was the thing you're, you know, that you, that you most accomplished that you, you accomplished that you're the most proud about looking back the, you know, the. You know, I, I said that there are some, you know, I, I think that the fact that some laws got passed that, that we played a big role in getting advanced. I mean, Tosca was always sort of a, as I said before, an orphan. So and it was always intended to sort of be a gap filler for the things that the other statutes didn't cover. So that isn't, I haven't, that isn't something that I take a lot of pride in, I don't think. But I, I feel very good about the fact that some of the chemicals that were particularly bad actors are no longer there doing their bad stuff and that they're no longer there in part because of stuff that I did. So I feel good about that. You know, I, I have some pride in the fact that a number of the programs that we've been talking about have an imprint on them of stuff that were a lot of my efforts along with a lot of other people. But that might not have happened, I think in some cases would not have happened, but for that. So I do feel very good about that. But watching, you know, the circle turn to square, you know, not circle, doesn't turn back to square one, that's not. Um, but (laughs) seeing the same issues again, the same questions like why do animal studies matter? I mean, that, that's a very disillusioning feeling to to know that you just, I mean, the same battles all over again, 
I think that's the thing that troubles me the most that you, you know, you sort of spinning wheels because in the end, here we are again doing the same thing and making the same arguments. But in spite of that, I can say what I just said before, which is there are a lot of things that are much better now than they were then, and that's not changed. And I can take some pride in the fact of having had some impact on that. But I certainly didn't do it alone. And it was fun. It was fun. (laughs) That was the other thing. Well, thank you so much, Jackie. Okay. It was fun. All right. Well, we'll talk again soon. Okay. Great. The Toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers Podcast.